Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's conversation, recorded on November 16th, is with Alan Gold, the executive chair of the newly formed IQHQ, a life sciences real estate company. Alan is a serial entrepreneur in this space who is a co-founder of what is now Alexandria Real Estate Equities. He was the founder of Biomed, a life sciences REIT that was sold to Blackstone in 2016, the founder and chair of innovative industrial properties, the Marijuana REIT, whose CEO Paul Smithers was a guest on the show last year, and now IQHQ, a 144A biotech startup founded earlier in this very special year of 2020. You all know that we explore the different niches in the real estate business on Leading Voices, and I've long wanted to dig into the biotech life sciences business on the show. With COVID, it's become one of the darling niches in the business, in part evidenced by Blackstone's doubling down and recapping versus flipping its investment in the business versus its continued commitment to Biomed, Allen's former company. In the discussion with Allen, we really dig in on two areas. First, the drivers and dynamics of the life sciences businesses and the barriers to success in this business as a real estate asset class. We talk about his career-long belief in the value of specialization and expertise, which I believe in and as well, and has certainly been a driver of success for Allen and his businesses. We also talk about the value of having a long-term team and colleagues, the value of bringing the band back together, which he's experiencing with IQHQ. And for music fans like me, you get to experience in that realm as well. I got to see that in literally the band is back together and finishing each other's sentences in a documentary I watched the other day on the making of Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band's latest album. We get to see that sometimes in our industry as well with the forming and reforming of certain management teams in different sectors of the industry. And it's certainly one of the keys to Alan's multiple successes. I'm sure that long-term listeners to the show are aware of my goal in curating the guest list has been both to show the breadth and diversity of the real estate industry, touring us across sectors, geographies, age, gender, ethnicity of leaders, as well as to dig deeper into some of my areas of interest in real estate, especially multiple deep dives into the housing crisis. I spent a ton of time trying to find worthy guests to keep these different perspectives flowing. If you have observations about specific episodes, ideas for worthy guests, or other comments, please feel free to contact me via my email at TerraSearchPartners at Matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. And of course, keep on listening, subscribe, and share with a friend. Have a great holiday and enjoy the conversation with Alan Gold. It's a good one. Alan Gold, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm pleased to have you on the show and thrilled to talk about the real estate sector that serves the life sciences industry, an industry that in these times of COVID and vaccines and things none of us had to understand before we care so much about. And we haven't covered your sector in the 80 episodes that we've been on Leading Voices, so really important for me to have this conversation. I appreciate your being here. And I think there's a headline like over the last couple of weeks in the real estate business when Blackstone re-upped and recapitalized what had been your company saying, hey, this is a long-term business, we're in it. And all of my clients with office properties are now all of a sudden in the life sciences business because that's the sector where leasing's happening the most. 
And those are all things to talk about. And the last comment to the introduction of that is, I don't know much about the life sciences business, so you get to educate me and our listeners about what this is all about. Appreciate that. So maybe you start, if you can, just talk about, and we're going to get into you a lot and your company a lot, but you know, kind of talk about life sciences and its role right now in the real estate business and, and the real estate business's role in the life sciences industry. All right. Well, the life science real estate is a unique asset class, and it's extremely relevant today, obviously, because of the pandemic and because of the world is looking at the life science industry as a savior or a group that's going to be able to provide the solutions to this pandemic in many ways. And as we can see, you know, already that has been announced you know, prior to today, the Pfizer has had a successful trial with their vaccine and, and Moderna has had a successful trial result from their vaccine. And those are, you know, are data points that, you know, really help the life science industry. The industry itself is an industry that's comprised of the biotechnology industry, the pharmaceutical industry, medical device, drug delivery technology type companies in the biotechnology industry, the drug discovery companies. And what we do with IQHQ and what we've done you know, as part of our career since discovering this industry over 30 years ago is provide capital and physical space that, are, that is specialized that meets the needs of the research and development aspects of these industries. And the research and development side of the business requires the scientific research laboratories that are built within structures, buildings, and that are basically controlled airspaces. And these controlled airspaces are developed using what the industry has done in forever, which is using H heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems to provide these controlled airspaces. Got it. And you just started your new company, which is your third company in this business, I think, IQHQ. Just talk briefly about that, then we'll drill into all the different aspects of this. So after selling Biomed Realty Trust to Blackstone at the end of 2016, took a break and then watched as the industry continued to raise capital and be very successful. And it was quite clear that in 2019 that the industry had achieved something that it hadn't done before and that it has, which was achieve a, a level of valuation and amount of capital that has flown into the industry that had never been seen before. And so we, we believed that it was a, a great time to start a new company and focus on creating what we think are what the industry really, truly needs. And that is real estate that allows the biotech industry tenants the ability to attract talent. And that's really what we're doing. We're a facilitator for these companies who need to attract talent and they're, and they're competing for that talent with other industries. And the primary other industry they're competing with, in addition to the scientists, but they're also competing now with tech talent. And they need that tech talent to help drive their business. So they're competing with the likes of the Googles and the Facebooks and the other tech industry to acquire that talent. And in order to do that, the biotech industry now needed real estate that not only allowed them to operate scientific research laboratories, but also to attract the tech talent by having these, what we believe are 
highly amenitized, large-scale buildings that are in locations which we consider live, work, play, and very close to or on transportation, because that's what the talent was demanding and are looking for and what these companies need in order to attract that type of talent. And when you started the business to develop or buy the live, work, play environments for these workers, that was pre-COVID, and we knew what live, work, play meant a year ago, but we still yes. don't know what live, work, play means coming out of the pandemic, which one day we will. Any comments on that morphing all of a sudden? Well, so we believe the talent is the same talent before pandemic and post pandemic, uh -huh. and that there will be a solution and that solution will be developed over the next 18 to 24 months. And the world will write itself and we'll go back to the concept of where employees want a high quality office environment or office and laboratory environment. Now, keeping in mind that during this period of time, the laboratory environment is an ideal environment for a pandemic in that it provides, the facilities themselves provide above standard HVAC systems or airflow systems. So in a traditional office space, the amount of outside air that's provided to an office building space is anywhere from 10 to 15%. So the volume of the air that's in your office space is exchanged with 10 to 15% outside air once an hour. It's recirculated and it's kept in the same temperature based with using the HVAC system that exists. But in a scientific research laboratory space, they require in the labs anywhere from six to 10 air changes per hour with 100% outside fresh air. So if you think that you're providing really super clean air, heating and cooling it, that's the that's the magic associated with these facilities. You have to have the infrastructure to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But now you're providing 100% outside fresh air, you know, six to 10 times per hour, very clean air system. It's a very clean environment in which to work in, ideally suited for a situation where the quality of air is key to reducing the COVID impact. Guy, it's interesting. I'd made the assumption as we hit COVID that life sciences was doing well because we needed those people to be in the labs, period. I wasn't thinking that the labs were also a safer environment in and of themselves, particularly by the HVAC. And you've talked about kind of the competing with the Googles of the world. So is there a change in your client base in terms of their employee base that used to be all lab workers in white coats, but now half of them are tech people more than it used to be? That's correct. And I mean, I when we talk about this change, it's not a change that snapped that occurred last year right. or two years ago. It has evolved over time. And that the need for data scientists or tech workers in the biotech industry has evolved over a period of time. And it's now hit a crescendo with the industry because it helps these biotech companies who have a long development cycle to develop a drug mm -hmm. or a therapy that's coming to uh, to fruition, it takes them a long time, 10, 15 plus years, that by adding the marrying tech with biotech accelerates that or reduces the overall development time, which as we all know, time is money. And if you can reduce the amount of time, you can increase the amount of money that those companies can make. Absolutely. So let's drill down onto those things that make this a difficult business for novices to enter and a great business for the experience to remain involved in. 
And what are those differentiating factors? What are the special things about the tenants or the buildings or the risk of the real estate or the cycle time of these businesses? Kind of talk through some of those issues, if you would. All three of those or all four of those that you've highlighted have, there is a component and an issue that those in the industry who have specialized in the industry and become experts in it really have a unique advantage over a traditional office developer. One, the industry is relatively small. We're talking about 120 or 140 million square feet of the total product that exists in the U.S. And so we have 140 million square feet of that, which is a really a very small component to the overall office sector, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of square feet. Right. Okay. And so that's number one. Number two is that the understanding how to communicate with the, the life science tenants is different than communicating with an office tenant. There's actually different nomenclature. Mm-hmm. You use the same words like tenant improvements. Tenant improvements to an office developer means one thing. Tenant improvements to a, uh, a laboratory tenant means capital that's going to help them build out their facility. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different uh, meaning, but it's the same words are used. The life science tenant has uh, very little credit or no credit. These companies are not making money. Now, certainly the pharmaceutical industry, the Pfizer's, the Johnson & Johnson's, they have very strong credit. And they also use uh, laboratories and they are also tenants that we lease to. But the majority of our tenants are the biopharmaceutical companies, which are by their very nature, development companies. If they're trying to create a product and they don't have revenue, they have mm-hmm. cash on their balance sheet, so they don't have credit. And an office building developer is always looking and trying to underwrite the credit of their tenants. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand that you're underwriting these tenants completely differently. And after 30 plus years of doing this, we have, we've developed some unique ways of making sure that we can underwrite these tenants and know how the tenants will react and how to lease to certain types of tenants and to shy away from other types of tenants. And let's drill down on this. Let's make it real. I'm really curious. And my wife was on the board and we were early investors in a farmer company. And I'm thinking the word valley of death because it, and we've been in the valley of death with these people for eight years, right? It just hasn't come together yet. They keep getting yet another round of funding, another round of funding. So talk through both that and then how you underwrite that, how you plan that. And then you're making a huge investment in TIs, which might not be relevant to the next tenant because they'll have a different need for a different thing. So how the heck do you do that? So when we provide TIs, we are very careful in how the capital that we use, remember the nomenclature. Mm -hmm. So we just, we threw TIs out. Right. And that's what an office developer would think. Well, I'm giving you TIs, and but what we're providing is capital, mm-hmm. and that capital is you know fungible. It goes into a budget and it's used. And we are very careful as to how our capital is used. And we've had 30 plus years of experience and understanding how capital is used. An office developer will typically allows their tenants to develop or plan and program their space, and then they provide it and. And the office developer says, well, based on your credit, you can do whatever you want and, and so on and so forth. Well, we we don't allow our tenants to design their facilities without our direct involvement. That is something that we work with them directly on to make sure that the capital that goes in, mm-hmm. our capital plus their capital, creates a space that has a great deal of reusability. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to do that over a long period of time. 
Now, I'm being very careful as to what I'm saying, because there is some magic in it. And we, you know, of we course. do have some proprietary uh, knowledge. Your secret sauce. Can't give it away. And, you know, and while I love to educate uh, uh, lenders and investors, educating and competitors is not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> well, we'll do a little bit of it today, but not too much. They'll just wet their whistle. But hopefully we keep drilling a little bit. It sounds like you're a VC firm and also for these startups that don't understand this capital expense of their workplace that well you do. So you help them like a VC helps a company grow. Their capital comes with knowledge and skills. So you get the right VC who knows your stuff. It's a better investment. Now, of course, a VC has upside. So we'll get both to the upside question, but then also to that question about reusability and the sinks and the space. I don't know the words to use, but kind of drill down just a little bit more, if you will, about how reusable that is if and how much you're helping them think through their business. Yeah. So we're not helping their business. We're helping them make sure that the investment that goes in is reusable for a variety of different types of tenants. And it helps them in their business in the long run. So we're risk mitigators as opposed to upside. A venture capitalist is not only a risk mitigator, but they're also looking for upside. Our primary focus is on mitigating risk. And by controlling how things are developed and how they're planned and where the capital goes, we mitigate our risk so that in the event that the tenant grows, which we hope that all these tenants do. They hope they, you know, have success right. in a phase one or a phase two or a phase three trial. That, and they're always going to grow. And they may need to move on, but they have a longer term lease here so that they need to make sure that the space is releasable to another type tenant. So that mitigates our risk and mitigates their risk, right? We also know that some of these tenants shrink, that something doesn't go the right way and they have to restructure and go down so that they may need to sublease some of the space. So we look at that. And we also know that occasionally, it's really actually pretty hard to kill a biotech company, uh, especially one that's already uh, gone public. It's actually very hard to kill one. But some management teams have figured out how to do that uh, to, to <laughs> uh -huh. the detriment of their shareholders. And so when we get space back, we want to make sure that it can be released to another one of these tenants. And that's why we're focused on developing high quality, iconic type facilities that can be reutilized in locations that have tremendous demand for this type of space. You certainly can build scientific research laboratories anywhere and everywhere, and you may be able to lease it the first time, but you may not be able to lease it when you release it, when the time comes to release it. And, and does a company want to pay for the premium of these words you just use, high quality and iconic? I'm thinking I'm better off in a warehouse a little further out because I have to make it five years on this amount of capital and 50-50, I'm going to, the drug's going to work. Right. Yeah, the reason that they're willing and they need to pay for a better location is, one, they need to attract capital, mm -hmm. and then they need to attract talent. And the leasing or the real estate cost is really a small component of their capital raising, and they're, and they're really the highest cost. And the thing that's most beneficial to drive a company forward is their talent. And if you can attract the right talent, you have a greater chance to succeed. So you want to really spend a lot more money on the talent, and you need to be able to attract that talent. If you're in some industrial building out in the middle of nowhere, you know, Phoenix, or, you know, it's really hard to attract that high quality talent that's saying, okay, I'm taking a risk with your company, and I'm going to come on board because I really think, I really believe in the science. Mm -hmm. But in the back of my head, I know what science is. Mm -hmm. Science is a binary 
research project. It either works or it doesn't. Exactly. So, and you do an experiment and it either works or it doesn't. You learn a lot from the experiment and then you have to do another experiment, but you, you eventually understand that there's risks associated with this and all scientists really innately understand that. So they innately look to locate where their services, their talent, their quality, their the value of their lives can be reutilized also by another company. And so they don't want to be out in some place where there are no other companies doing the same type of work. They want to be associated where, where other companies can utilize their talents. Which therefore means there's half a dozen markets in the country where there's going to be concentrations of talent, like in the tech industry. Is it the same as the tech industry or slightly different markets? It's different markets within the submarkets. And tech has the ability to go in much broader areas because their, their talent is more ubiquitous. The talent that goes into a bio is the, the scientific research talent and the high-tech data scientists in addition to the research. So you've got you know, more components to fill when you're looking for the right talent. We interviewed Bill Stein, who runs Digital Realty Trust, which is a data center REIT, or not the or a data center REIT. I don't know the right word for that. And it's interesting as we, and I've worked with their company from a recruiting standpoint, and their people are half real estate people, but not really real estate people. They're really experts in their space. And that must be what your team has to be able to do is talk the talk of these tenants, not be generic real estate people. I don't see how that could long run fit your business. That's correct. It really is the need to be an expert, understand, be able to speak the nomenclature of a life science tenant. At the same time, be a real estate person and understand the dynamics of the real estate market because they, when you make a pie, there are many ingredients that go into that pie and the real estate market is basically the pie pan. And how much of your business, and, and then we're going to move on to hear your story and tr- kind of contrast the different platforms that you've built. How much of this is about development in your new business and how much is acquisitions? And can you develop to a much better spec for what you've described that we're looking for today, but development's risky? Right. So we are a niche player within a niche and we are a development company (laughs) and we are focusing on developing this product type that we started working on at, at Biomed and then moved on to what we're now doing at IQHQ. Development is where we believe there's some tremendous opportunities to provide uh, significant returns to our investors. We think that the change in the industry moving away from just needing scientists to needing scientists and data scientists and tech workers is really the driving force behind what IQHQ is doing and the need to develop new opportunities. Also with the fact that the markets that we're in are very small, highly compacted, very competitive. And in order for us to be able to compete in those markets, we needed to find some unique opportunities. And we've done that. And we've done that. We've used our expertise that we've developed over the last 30 plus years to to do that. And Mm -hmm. uh, we've created some very exciting projects. Our Fenway project uh, directly overlooking uh, the Boston Red Sox Fenway ballpark is just phenomenal. And uh, equally phenomenal is our IQHQ one point, the RAD project in downtown San Diego, where we're developing 1.6 million square feet of space right on the water in an iconic location, irreplaceable location. It just, there's nowhere on the West Coast that anybody can develop on the water. We are the front porch of San Diego. And when people come to San Diego, they will see it from the airport. They will see it from the freeway. 
When they land, they will see it. When they come in on a boat, they will see it. It is the location, and we're really excited about that. And as is the Fenway Project. When you enter on the freeway, on the Mass Turnpike, you come right. in, we are going to be the first building that they're going to see. And our team is developing a, just a phenomenal project there. Our listeners won't see this, but your face lit up as you described each of these projects. So <laughs> I don't, I, although it's interesting because I think that capital requirements for long-term hold are different, or the investor desire for that is a different investor desire from development. So are these properties that you will hold forever in this portfolio, or do you wind up merchant building some of them, which would be giving away your babies, again, looking at your eyes? Yeah, I know we're creating a portfolio of really five or six really crown jewels, and nobody wants to sell their crown jewels, right? Everybody wants to keep them. The idea is to keep the portfolio together for a very, very long period of time and continue to grow it. Now, that doesn't mean that the way we've structured our business and the way we raise capital is through uh, a unique structure that does require us to have an exit in a three-year time frame. And we will have some sort of an exit, whether that is a full-on listing as a public company or perhaps a sale to a larger uh, entity uh, that exists today. Uh-huh. And what's this three-year arrangement? So what is the technical it's, status? It, of it? It's not. Is it a SPAC? No, it's not a SPAC. It's a 144A, which is a fixation of the uh, SEC code. And in it, we entered into an agreement with our shareholders to say, we're going to raise the money, we're going to deploy the money, and then we're going to have an exit in a period of time. We have a right to it, uh, a one-year extension. We may exercise that right. The board can approve it. We're going to operate as, as though we're a public company. We're going to have an independent board, which we have. We're going to do everything as though we're a public company. So we're prepared to be public in that three or four year time frame. All our financials are audited. We're doing everything as though we're a public company. Got it. And you've been there before. So let's pivot and talk about you and your story, because I want to hear the two or three times before that you've done this why you're doing it again, how this is different, what it means, but and to contrast the businesses, which is fascinating. And also one of the headlines of you and your company is San Diego. So are you from San Diego? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, I'm native San Diego and love San Diego. It's a beautiful city. We really truly believe that it is on par with any of the other large uh, clusters of the life science sector. And it's now just, uh, it's now maturing to, with some very strong companies. So we're really excited about San Diego. Well, first of all, everyone loves San Diego. Anyone who's ever been there, of course, the weather would be the headline. The water would be the second headline. I mean, it's just nothing better almost any time of year. So, And you can't beat the IQHQ RAD project right on the water. <laughs> <laughs> I know that whole waterfront because every time I go to a conference, I walk the waterfront and it's just beautiful. Okay, so let's keep going. So you grew up there, kind of college, and how do you get into real estate? I started out at UCSD as a biochemistry major and didn't do very well uh, in that industry or that field. But I did very well with uh, statistics and economics. And so I moved over to uh, San Diego State and I got my undergraduate degree in finance Mm -hmm. and then uh, subsequent to that from San Diego State. And then I also got my uh, master's from San Diego State, my MBA with an emphasis in real estate finance. That's my educational background. Uh Uh-huh. And, and what was the draw to real estate finance from biotech? Of course, at the end of the game, we know why this wound up being the right combination. But what was it about real estate was interesting to you? I've been a serial entrepreneur prior to being involved with the biotech industry, having had as a young man paper route, 
and then a uh, telephone uh, book distribution slash flyer distribution company. And then uh, I, we developed a small product called uh, Fanny Flask, which was a combination uh, bag, you know, fanny pack, very similar to uh, Camel Pack prior to Camel Pack ever coming out. We had that, we sold that, we developed a couple other small products, finished my MBA, went to work as a mortgage banker mortgage broker for John Burnham and Company. Yeah. It, it's a very entrepreneurial business. You get to meet with a lot of entrepreneurs who are real estate developers. I got to understand capital and how to raise capital and financing. Came across uh, for uh, Malin Burnham, a project that he needed financing for. And it was very difficult because it was a uh, high cost per square foot back in 1988. That was when I was doing that. And the industry was still going through the savings and loan debacle and, and uh, capital was hard to raise. And we are asked to provide permanent financing for a non-credit transaction, single tenant transaction in San Diego and required uh, educating investors as to this whole biotech industry back then. And uh, so that took a lot of time. Became, you had to become an expert in that field right. or that specific submarket. And you had to be really good at educating investors and, and lenders. And mm -hmm. I was able to do that, be able to provide that capital. And then from there, I kept trying, I kept working on that industry. It became quite clear that I was one of a few people really understanding this industry and that there was tremendous demand for capital in that for scientific research laboratories at that time. And it was a, a new emerging field. The whole biotech industry was just emerging. Right. And so we decided that there needed to be a dedicated investor who had capital dedicated to this industry that they could take advantage of uh, these unique situations in these markets. And uh, we developed a, a business plan under the name of Bio Properties uh -huh. and uh, marketed Bio Properties throughout the Wall Street and to, spoke to every investment banker that would take a meeting. And it was... Um, Are we still at the end of the SNL crisis? We're like the 82, yeah, 83 is, here? Yeah, 19, yeah, this is 1991, 1992. Okay, so we've moved into the middle of the SNL recovery. We're in 92, 93. You leave John Burnham because there needs to be a specialized business and you're trying to market bio properties, and we as you, or is we you and other people? Uh, myself and two other partners, uh, Gary Kreitzer and Stephen Stone at that time. And we were lucky that we were able to find capital. We raised $21 million from a group of investors out of Pasadena. This was uh, Joe Jacobs and Jacobs Engineering and Jerry Sudarsky and Joseph Flom and Joseph Amali. And uh, those individuals, primarily Jacob Engineering and Joe Jacobs, invested $21 million into a young man and a idea, never bought any real estate book, you know, other than a house or even that was a condo, I think at the time. And, but they believed in what we were doing and invested $21 million and it changed the name from Bioproperties to Health Science Properties. And we started in January of 1994. Mm -hmm. And we're able to then amass a portfolio that allowed health science properties to go public in 1997. And after it went public, I was the president and a director, but I didn't work well in the sandbox with the CEO. And that was uh, Joel Marcus at that time. And so 
I departed and formed a new company called uh, Bernardo Property Advisors. So Health Science Properties became Alexandria REIT. That's correct, yeah. Okay. And when did it become Alexandria REIT? Uh, we took it public in May, uh, May 27th, 1997, which happened to be my birthday. Congratulations. Okay, so that was 97. And how long did you stay there before you... I'd love to drill down on the sandbox, but I won't. It might be personal, but I'm always curious about the sandbox. Oh, the sandbox was interesting. It was interesting. And, it, you know, it was one where whenever you go into an organization and uh, can't have too many heads, you can only have one leader. And Joel was chosen as leader. And, and it just I think he did what he thought was best for the organization. And I had to move on. So I moved on in August of 1998. And then from there, we formed uh, Bernardo Property Advisors, bought our, completed our first uh, transaction at the end of 1998 and using friends and family capital. Same business, um, same business model or slightly different? No? Same business. Okay. Doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, was able to acquire interest or uh, actual assets of another four different transactions to have a portfolio of roughly $150 million. And then 2003 decided that we needed to raise more capital because there was there was significant opportunities. I was able to come up with the equity capital, but I wasn't able to come up with the debt at that time. It was a unique period of time. If you recall, 2003 is it was yeah. after the 2000 dot com bomb, and you know Russian ruble crisis, I think too. Yeah, the Russian exactly right. And uh, single tenant non credit leases were extremely hard to finance, and so. It became apparent that what we needed to do was go public again. And uh, we took our portfolio and then we took the portfolio we were trying to acquire, mm-hmm. combined the two, and we were able to raise $465 million in uh, August of 2004. And that's what uh, started Biomed Realty Trust. Okay. And tell me just the end game, and then I want to hear about Biomed. So you then sold Biomed. You started in 04 and sold it to Blackstone what year? We sold it to Blackstone. The transaction was completed in 2016. Okay, cool. So that's 12 years. Talk about those 12 years and what was that company that you built and what was the breadth of it, diversity of it, and any changes in evolution from everything else we've talked about? Because at first it sounded like deals and knowing how to invest in these deals, but I'm guessing it starts to become a business. Well, it always was a business. It's always the unique thing about the life science industry. It just takes a tremendous amount of capital. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to constantly raise capital or constantly have access to capital. And you have to have a portfolio, a large enough portfolio, in order to be able to satisfy the needs of your tenants. Mm -hmm. So it's a unique business in that side. Yes, you may be successful developing a single asset, leasing it up, but you won't be successful long-term unless you have a variety of assets because the tenants are living, breathing organisms that move and grow and shrink and and need more space and need less space. And so you you need to be able to accommodate all that. But one point, Ted, and when I said the word business, I did not mean to be pejorative. I was thinking the word I like to use is operating platform because the operations becomes part of your secret sauce as you grow and gain scale. And that's what you just described because it, gels the bigger it becomes more momentous right exactly and so if you can imagine in 2004 we just raised 465 million dollars of capital we start really started with a portfolio of about 150 million about five assets about a million and a half square feet and we were able to grow that from that size to obviously the sale to blackstone was eight billion dollars and over 19 million square feet and we went from assets in san diego and san francisco to 
you know, assets in uh, nine different markets, including the, the UK. We are the first and only US-based real estate, life science real estate company to not only acquire life science assets in the UK, but also develop assets in, in the UK. How much of a mix of development and acquisitions were there in that business? In that, the UK or the overall, overall business? It was probably close to 30 plus percent development and the rest was acquisition and redevelopment. <laughs> and this may be a, a sensitive question, but I want to contrast you with that other REIT that was in the sandbox with you before. At the time that you sold your company, what did Alexandria look like and what did Biomed look like? And did they compete with similar products or was it differentiated in some way? Yeah, no, we competed with similar products. They were, I think at that time, about $5 billion in size. Mm -hmm. And we were, as I said, $150 million, maybe $600 million. Right. And so we competed head to head. They had a, They certainly had a head start and they certainly had lower cost of capital, but we're an entrepreneurial group from the very beginning. We tend to build very strong and long-lasting relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's with those relationships that we've been, we were able to compete. And we also uh, were pioneers in that we understood the need for this industry and understood where the tenants were and, and their need to grow and, and grow. Like As an example, as a real estate company, we were the first ones to actually make acquisitions in the Kendall Square area of Cambridge, Boston. And we are the first ones to develop large assets. We were the first, uh, Biomed was the first company to develop an 18-story scientific research laboratory tower. And uh, we did that before anybody else even thought about doing that. Let me interrupt you again. I'm sorry, but let me ask you a question about the 18-story tower. Do tenants care about who's near them in these buildings? To a certain degree, they, they do. Yes, they do. Tenants don't really like to locate with office tenants Mm -hmm. because office tenants don't understand the smells and the needs and the the operations of of a life science business here's another example of nomenclature you know you know you lease to a life science tenant you got to understand you're leasing to a company that has a mission critical need they need to operate 24 hours a day seven days a week those buildings stay operational and fully functional the entire period of time an office space, you know, six to eight o'clock at night, goes dark, HVAC goes off, HVAC goes off on the weekend. Right. So you can't do that in a life science building. You have different needs. That's why they don't mix very well together. And then, yes, there are certain chemical smells and, and different time frames that employees work. And so uh, you really can't operate in a building where one tenant is complaining about another tenant's operations because right. that just won't work. And then you got to be careful too. When you're a life science tenant, you want to go into a building. You certainly don't want uh, another tenant coming in and poaching what you're, what's the most important thing that you have. Your people, right? Yeah. Your people, yeah. It has to be careful. Yeah. It has to be thought through and uh-huh. it is unique. I can also imagine I'm an office tenant or I'm, I'm a normal person and down the halls, this locked door and they're doing something weird in there and weird smells and weird smokes coming out the bottom of the door. <laughs> but there must be like high security, high confidentiality. There may be unmarked doors. I mean, it just has to be a different kind of business unless that's what the whole building is and no one cares. But yeah, 18 the whole business building. is the whole space, you know, but there are, it is high security and there are, you're dealing with hazardous materials that are being brought into the building. Right. And if you're a non-hazardous material user and you see hazardous material signs and trucks and people showing up, 
you may have some concerns with that. It, it, they right. really don't work very well together. Yeah. Okay. So let's, we're bouncing around here, but let's go back and fast forward to 2016. So in 2016, you sell the business and people sell businesses at different times for different reasons. Sometimes it's the business is challenged. Sometimes there's no capital for the business. Sometimes we just got a price we can't believe. Sometimes I'm ready to retire. I, I Sometimes I just want to be part of Blackstone because they're so cool and powerful. So talk about kind of how you sold, I'll call it your baby. How did that come about? Well, we were approached by Blackstone and they were offering a price that was well above what we could get from the public markets. The public markets at that time didn't value our cash flow and the opportunity as much as Blackstone did. And so it was compelling. It was a compelling time to sell. It was a period of time where the industry wasn't raising capital as much as it had. Mm -hmm. And then uh, so it made sense to sell, take advantage of the private market valuation that was that occurred, it gave an opportunity for many of our employees to earn a significant amount of money mm-hmm. and then move on to new opportunities. And you have a responsibility to your shareholders. If the number is a good number, you can't not got to kind of do that what you got to do. Exactly. So talk about what that meant for you. And did you want to stay and grow it under that new regime? So that happens for some people selling companies. And I think you chose not to. So talk a little bit about that. And then we'll get to IQHQ in a moment. But I know that you also, and we had Paul Smithers on our podcast a year ago, somehow you came up with the marijuana read concept, So, which maybe we could laugh about. So talk about all those transitions. Yeah. So we made the decision to sell. We were, into, we're selling. The opportunity to stay was there, but it was working for another entity and I've been a uh, serial entrepreneur. I really have only worked basically for myself, but you mm-hmm. know, with uh, board oversight. And so it really, uh, really wasn't my plan to work for Blackstone. It was to help transition the company. There was nothing wrong with the company. Things were going really well. The company, the portfolio was extremely well leased. We had created some very exciting and unique development opportunities. Uh, up in the Bay Area in San Diego and out in uh, the UK and in, and in Boston. And so there was great opportunities for Blackstone. And, and that's what the value that they saw that, unfortunately, the public market didn't see. And so I helped with the transition. I stayed on as CEO until the end of June of, of 2016 to help bring in a new CEO. And that was Tim Schoen. You know, he's done a fantastic job taking over uh, with that organization. So my last real operational day was at the end of June of 2016. I stayed on as a consultant to help them with any sort of other transitions with other employees and and to help them with certain developments and and relationship transferring uh, relationships that we've been built up over time. So that's what I did. And then as a serial entrepreneur, the music stops a little bit. Maybe at first it stops nicely and delightfully, and then maybe in the long run, it's like a little, wait a minute, I got more to do here. Yeah, no. I mean, I think, uh, yes, I am a serial entrepreneur, but I have varied interests. I could have, I have done. Not only did we fund and start uh, Innovative Industrial Properties, which was a... Uh, a real estate investment trust that I'm executive chair on that is focused on uh, medical cannabis grow and processing and retail facilities, but also have continued my interest in funding, uh, being a venture capitalist in the biotech industry. I maintain that, mm-hmm. and that was fun. 
also uh, funded and started another e-commerce business. It's selling uh, a product called, it's a superfoods company and it sells unique products that were developed after in, in 2018. Mm-hmm. And that company is doing fantastic. Uh, and then now, uh, in addition to IIP and the e-commerce business, we've started uh, IQHQ and, and moving that forward. And I see myself continuing to grow and grow not only uh, innovative industrial properties, which is doing fantastic, and not only to keep moving the e-commerce business forward, but also growing IQHQ and perhaps one or two others. I just, it's, it's what I enjoy doing. I love it. I don't know how Mr. Dorsey does it in, in the tech world as a younger man, but I can see how you could have three or four portfolios that you're at a high level managing each of them. Yeah. And I enjoy that aspect of it. I enjoy focusing in on not only the strategic aspect of the business and how what's the right strategic path for the next uh, period of time, but also the personnel, the people, and love creating strong teams that work really well together and growing those teams and seeing the success in their eyes. I just love that aspect. So let's talk about that. So in Innovative Industrial Properties, the marijuana REIT, that is part of your band being back together again because it's a lot of biomed people. And then IQHQ also, the band is back together again. Did you share between the two companies? And what's it like for the band to be back together again? And, And talk about the value of a team that's worked together that long especially in a new venture, which is just a fascinating combination. Well, without a doubt. And uh, so, but no, we did not share. The two entities are completely separate and have stayed separate. But the real key of bringing together a team is having them meld as quickly as possible to drive a business right. forward. And certainly the what's going on with IQHQ is an example of that. Starting very early in 2019 to be able to bring that team together to not only raise the initial round of $770 million of capital, and then acquire the opportunity to develop 4.4 million square feet. And basically off-market transactions, we did have one transaction that we won in a bid, but that requires a unique team and talent with some very strong relationships and the ability to work together really rather rapidly. And then to be able to grow that from a, a team of four or five to now a team of 35, it takes tremendous skills and expertise. And I'm so proud of Steve Rosetta and Tracy Murphy and John Bonato and their ability to, to achieve those facts. You play well in the sandbox. Growing teams is, is you know, really enjoyable. And, and I, I really do believe that being a partner, I've always had um, partners in all my, trend, all my businesses and being able to work well with my partners, I think is just a joy for me. I've been partners with, uh, as an example, with a gentleman by the name of Gary Kreitzer, who is a founder of Alexandria and Bioproperties, a founder of Bernardo Property Advisors, a founder of Biomed, a founder of Innovative Industrial Properties, and a founder in IQHQ. I like to say that I, you know, been a partner with him longer than I've been married to my wife. So it's funny you're, you're describing the delight of continued collaborators or partners. The delight of some of that being in San Diego, the delight of it being in a small industry where relationships, not just among your team, but the relationships that emanate out from them into the sector that you're serving has to be, you know, it's like a baseball player having value well beyond just what they could do. But everything you've said is describing these small places where you you just blanket it well. Yeah. Yeah, we become, you know, one thing I learned from my father was that uh, you needed to become an expert in something. 
And once you become an expert, really, really work that, that industry. And uh, I became an expert in raising capital, whether it was through debt or equity, and being able to educate investors about what we're doing. So I was an expert in, in the life science industry, continued to be that, and also learned that the life science industry has barriers that prevent others from competing in it. And that's a really valuable tool and a, a valuable learning experience. Mm-hmm. And the same with innovative industrial properties are barriers for others to compete in that industry. And as an example, we're the only New York Stock Exchange traded company that provides capital to the medical cannabis industry. And we're the only one that's been able to get that New York Stock Exchange listing. Mm -hmm. And that's allowed us to have continuous access to capital that nobody else does. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the moats around that business. The unique skills and relationships that we've built with the team that we have at IQHQ is unique to a company. It's, it's our skills and expertise in a very small niche industry brought together allows us to do these very large scale projects. Understanding the talents of our team and then utilizing the strengths of each team member and trying to mitigate any of the weaknesses because we all have weaknesses. I'm, we, we all are, mm-hmm. have different things that we need to have help with. But understanding that has allowed us to continue to be successful. Well, it sounds you've done it multiple times. I don't know what's next because this one's, but this one's going to continue. I'm going to bet the next thing's going to be alongside this thing. The last question on leading voices is always, what advice would you give to a young person entering into the real estate business? So it starts with what we just described mm-hmm. about becoming an expert in mm-hmm. a certain industry, a certain location, or a certain market, or a certain financing type, or you know, a certain, a certain way of looking at real estate that others don't look at. Mm-hmm. If you can become an expert in something, either by learning it from an industry professional or by doing all the work on yourself, it gives you such a leg up and it gives you the ability to raise capital mm-hmm. and paint the vision to your investors or lenders that you really truly understand something that others don't. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is love to learn the word no. No is a fantastic word. Every time you hear it, it gets you closer to the word yes. Mm-hmm. You got to hear it a number of times to get to yes. And every time you hear no, all you have to think about is, okay, all that person is telling me is I haven't found the way to get him to say yes. So I got to keep working. Mm. So. And those are the two. I thought when you started to say love to learn, I thought you were going to stop there. Because still, I'm watching you on video and you're smiling as you talk about these things. And one thing that's coming across, and it comes across with almost everyone I get to talk to on this thing, is that they love that space that they're in. They love the business that they're in. The level of passion drives depth. Yeah, and drives success. Yeah. I think it does. Hey, Alan, thank you very much. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.